Radio advertising is good. Why should you advertise on the Tam Talk Radio Network, AM 1340? Well, it's simple. We are a local radio station with local shows that target our local communities and local listeners. We have a variety of shows that cover a multitude of informative and interesting topics, such as automotive and boating, real estate and finance, health and medical, politics and law, sports and fishing, pet care, and more. Why, we are even home to Imus in the Morning. We also have shows about comedy, food and dining, religion, fashion, local community events and activities, and a variety of music. Talk radio provides a listening format that appeals to a large cross-section of people. Whether you are in your car, at work, at home, everyone has a radio. And we are streamed live on the Internet. And past shows are podcasted so you, the listener, can play back your favorite shows over and over again. The possibilities are endless. So that, my listeners, is why you should advertise on the Tam Talk Radio Network, AM 1340. Hey, listeners, this is Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Let me tell you about my company, Gulfstream Motorsports, Inc. 727-541-1741. I have over 35 years' experience with classic, vintage, sport, and racing cars. I do appraisals, consulting, and pre-purchase inspections. Before you buy your next rare classic, the car of your dreams, give me a call at Gulfstream Motorsports, Inc. 727-541-1741. Also, due to my 28 years' experience in the auto salvage business, I am very good with wrecks. So if your car has been in a wreck, call me for a diminished value report. Call me at 727-541-1741. You may be owed some money for lost value of your repaired vehicle. That's Gulfstream Motorsports, Inc., 727-541-1741. And be sure to tune in to Nostalgic Radio and Cars, Wednesdays, 7 to 8 p.m. on the Tantalk Radio Network, AM 1340. If you like golf, enjoy affordable golf at Magnolia Valley Golf Club, located on Massachusetts Avenue in Newport Ritchie. Play for as little as $15 after 2 p.m. The club has two beautiful courses to choose from, an 18-hole championship par 72 plus another nine-hole executive par 33. Join their open leagues on Wednesday afternoons at 4 and Sunday mornings at 8. Call 727-847-2342 for tee times or visit their website, magnoliavalleygolfclub.com. There's a holdup in the Bronx, Brooklyn's broken out in fights. There's a traffic jam in Harlem that's backed up to Jackson Heights. There's a scout who showed a child cruise ships to an Idle Wild. Car 54, where are you? Hey, listeners, welcome. You are tuned in to Nostalgic Radio and Cars. I'm your host, Robert. Hey, run your computers real quick. Call your buddies because we are streamed live. So go to, uh, what is it, uh, Tantalk1340.com, and uh, you'll catch us live on the radio. And don't forget to check out our podcast at Nostalgic Radio and Cars and also our Facebook, Nostalgic Radio and Cars. We've got a great show for you tonight. we got a really cool guest tonight. Uh, you guys really like this guy. Matter of fact, you'll probably all know who he is. Uh, he's another TV uh, host, and uh, we're looking forward to having him on the show. And, of course, we'll be playing a few cool songs. So, hey, Lee, how you doing today? What do you got? Uh, is that, that we, you know what? Every time I come in, I've got to work on... I'm queuing up your next thing here. You're queuing up my thing? Okay. So I'll just keep blabbing here. I think I've got it queued up. You got a queued up? Cool. Okay. Anyway, so uh, we're working on something here. And uh, But anyway, hey, uh, we what got a you, bunch what of... What are you queuing up? What am I queuing up? Yeah. Uh, I guess I'm going to queue. Your notes. Looks like you're queuing up. I'm queuing up my notes. notes. Yeah, hey. Yeah. You know, if I'm on the air, if you guys can see me, just go ahead and wave, or I'll wave it to everybody. And, uh, but at any rate, um, we've got uh, a whole bunch of cool shows coming up here. And uh, we've got a friend of ours that's doing something. As a matter of fact, it's Wednesday night, so everybody's doing the Harley thing down at uh, Quaker Steak and Lube. And, uh, of course, it's testing two night at uh, Sunshine Drag Strip. A big hello to uh, Heasley Hood and Sherry and, and uh, excuse me, Mike out there. And uh, let's see. Also, coming up on the 16th, we got a big VW Fest at Quaker Steak and Lube. Be sure to check that out. That's an open to all 
German air-cooled cars, actually Porsche, Volkswagen. Uh, I don't even know if they made an Audi at the time, but they did make a DT- DKW back in the day. So if you got a VW, if you got a bus, a dune buggy, a kit car, a 911, a 912, anything that's air-cooled, give my friend Joe at 813-516-7061. That's Joe at 813-516-7061. He's got a big VW thing going on the 16th, okay? That's uh, next week. At the uh, Quaker Steak and Lube over there on 49th Street in Clearwater. I guess that's still Clearwater. How are we doing there? We get that tape deck working yet? Still I working? think so. Yeah, you I can do some quick repairs on it. Okay. You know how it is. It's always a last minute thing. Yeah, and then, you know, of course, I left my tools out in the truck, so, you know, it's hiding over there in the corner. But uh, anyway, I hate that. we got it? Almost? Yeah, okay. Yeah, we're ready to go. Oh, okay, go ahead. I mean, let's, let's, of, let's whip it on them. Starts out like this. Oh, no. Hey, wait a minute. That doesn't sound right. Not it. What? Jasmine Sullivan. Is that it? Bust your windows. Out your car. Is that? <laughs> I got bust your windows out of your car. Now you ruined the surprise. Well, wait a minute. So you got to submit your... Uh, i got to submit them, right? Your, your notes like, like you know, somewhere earlier than during the news. I got gotcha. you. Well, I'm learning. I'm learning, you know. Right. Anyway. Oh, wait. That can't be right. So we're going to roll with this for a while? Yeah. No, 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 no. no. we got to change that. Okay. Hey. Let, me, let, me, let me fix this. Yeah, fix this real quick. Jeez. That's, there we go.
Hey, listeners, this is Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars. I'd like to tell you about Naughty Nancy. No, this isn't a story about a bad girl. This is a truth about a great place to eat and hang out. Naughty Nancy's Food Shack, located at 700 Eldridge Street in the downtown Clearwater area, is a quaint little place nestled under some huge oak trees serving great food and drink and a wonderful, friendly atmosphere. That's Naughty Nancy's, 727-446-3717. They have 10 daily specials as well as many different styles of cooking from Cajun, New England, Country Gourmet, and even Short Order, prepared just the way you want it. So check out this groovy little dew drop in right on the trail. So jog up to her front door, ride up on your bicycle, drive up in your car, or pull up on your motorcycle. And visit my friend Nancy and place your order. That's Naughty Nancy's, 727-446-3717. Hey, mention Nostalgic Radio and Cars and you might get a free drink. Hey listeners, this is Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars. I'd like to tell you about a great pizza shop right here in downtown Clearwater. Bro's Pizzeria, voted number one in the city of Clearwater. They're located at 547 South Fort Harrison Avenue. They have great New York-style pizza, as well as delicious lasagna, spaghetti and meatballs, manicotti, linguine. And if you're in the neighborhood for lunch, they have great hot and cold sandwiches and appetizers. So call 727-441-6025 for takeout and deliveries, or stop by for a veal parmesan dinner and a nice glass of vino. That's Bro's Pizzeria. Check out their website and watch my friend Olti create a spectacular pizza before your very eyes. What would you like on your pizza? Call Bro's Pizzeria, 727-441-6025. That's 727-441-6025. And tell them Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars sent you. The first rule of... Well, that didn't go over very yeah, good. I'll figure out why that happened. Okay. Uh, hey, you guys. You, you can't blame me for that one. I can't blame you for that one because no, I recorded that one. Okay, guys, you're tuned back into Nostalgic Radio and Cars, and Lee's going to go ahead and fix my recording there because uh, I'm a novice at this, but that's the cool thing about live radio. It's live. Anything yeah. can happen, right? I guess we should be listening to them before the show. <laughs> we'll see if they work. See if they work, yeah. Okay. Well, anyway, hey, guys, I just talked uh, a few minutes ago. I was talking about the VW Fest uh, at uh, Quaker Steak and Lube on the 16th. Be sure, be sure and check that out. Okay, all air-cooled VWs, Porsches. We want everybody. We had a pretty good turnout uh, last year. This is his fourth year, so uh, give Joe a call at 813-516-7061. 813-516-7061. Okay, and be sure to tune in to Tantalk1340 1340.com. You can catch us live on the internet or stream there. And occasionally I pick my hand up and wave at everybody. And uh, let's see what else we got. Oh, yeah. Hey, big deal coming up this week on the 8th and 9th, okay, at Silver Springs uh, up in Ocala. The uh, 17th annual, all, well, I guess you could call it All Ford Show, Ford Mustang Show at Silver Springs. And the uh, host up there is our friends at National Parts Depot. So I'm sure a lot of you guys have got Camaros and Mustangs. Uh, all know about National Parts Depot. They're up there in Ocala as well. They got a got nine acres on the roof now. Okay. Well, anyway, this show's been going on for quite some time, and they've got fifteen hundred cars registered for this event. Okay, that's this weekend, the eighth and the ninth. It's hosted by National Parts Depot, and of course, the guys from Mustang Monthly are there. Modified Mustangs, five O Mustang, all those guys will be there. Should be a really, really cool event. I mean, there'll be anything there. I mean, Shelby's bosses, Mustangs, Cobras, Tigers, uh, kit cars with Ford motors, anything that had a Ford motor in. It. Hey, if you get lucky, you might even find an old vintage uh, Ford airplane that's got a Ford motor in it. Okay. Uh, also, let's see. Don't forget the Kaiser, the Devereux Kaiser Show. That's on the thirty first. That's Sunday, the last day of the month. At Sarasota Square Mall, huge show, 1,000 cars. And uh, check that out, too. Don't forget our friends at Meekum Auction, okay, on the 26th through the 30th. They've got their huge auction at the uh, Kissimmee Fairgrounds. Be sure and check out their website, Meekum Auctions. They've got over 50, somebody said 1,800, but uh, as of the moment, I think there's like 1,500 cars registered to be sold at the Kissimmee uh, Fairgrounds Meekum Auction auction. And uh, so go check that out. Go to the website. And then, of course, real important is the 24 Hours at Daytona, okay? That's the uh, 24-hour race, world famous. That's on the 29th through the 30th. And chances are you may catch me at any one of these events, okay? And then also our friend uh, Randy Hagwood is putting on a street races reunion at Quaker Steak and Lube on the, I think it's the 30th. That's a Saturday, okay? And, uh... That's something he does uh, once a year. He's been trying to get this going for a while. So all you guys, myself included, that used to be really serious about street racing, 
and we'll say in the Pinellas County area pretty much because you had North County and South County and I was in the Clearwater area. So all you guys that are still around, if you still have your hot rods, you still still have your cars, be sure and check out uh, Randy Haywood's uh, Street Racer Reunion, and that will be at Quaker Steak and Lube on the 30th, I think. I'm pretty correct on that date. Anyway, let's see. We've got uh, – do we have our guests on the line? Or – wait a minute. We've got another so- sh- yeah, song coming up. We've got another song yeah. coming up. What do we got this time? Oh, yeah. No, this this song is kind of fitting for our guest a little bit. So let's uh, – now that we got the tape deck working, let's see if the turntable works. And, you know, we're getting better at it. Though. We, we're requiring less and less time and using less and less tools to keep these uh, antique, antiquated devices yeah, – I think this one's running pretty good. Let's check it out. Here. Okay. Well, oh. hey. Hey. Yeah, Wait a minute. Are you sure that's not somebody outside? Yeah. No? I'm pretty sure. Okay. That's from the Easy Rider movie with Peter Soundtrack. Fon- Soundtrack. Yeah, with Peter Fonda. Super. This is Robert from Nostalgic Radiant Cars. I'd like to tell you about a great place to eat right on the main part of Clearwater Beach. Located at 333 South Gulfview Boulevard. Crabby's Beachwalk Bar and Grill has two floors of food, drink, and fun. They have daily specials, happy hour, nightly entertainment. Their menu caters to seafood lovers as well as land lovers. Crabby's Beachwalk Bar and Grill, 727-608-2065. They're open in the morning for breakfast until 1 a.m. So stop by and visit my friends, Turtle, Eddie, and Polly, and all the girls and staff at Crabby's Beachwalk Bar and Grill. That's 727-608-2065. Mention Nostalgic Radio and Cars, and you never know, you might get a free drink. That's Crabby's Beachwalk Bar and Grill on Clearwater Beach, 727-608-2065. listeners, this is Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars. We all love to eat. Well, I would like to tell you about my friends at the Rib Shack Barbecue on West Bay Drive in downtown Largo. Their menu offers family-sized takeout dinners like delicious ribs, chicken, beef, and pork, or sit-down barbecue dinners, sandwiches, and even desserts. They will also cater your party. Everything is barbecued fresh using real oak for that great smoky flavor. So visit my friends, Corey, Jed, and Kirk at the Rib Shack Barbecue in downtown Largo, 600 West Bay Drive, or call them for a takeout order at 727-501-9090. That's 727-501-9090. They truly have the best smoking barbecue in town. Oh, and be sure and check out their great barbecue sauce. That's the Rib Shack Barbecue in downtown Largo, 727-501-9090. I'm telling Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars sent you. Yeah, baby. Yeah. <laughs> 
Okay, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and everybody, you are tuned in to Nostalgic Radio and Cars. We are back live, and it's just about time to introduce our special guest for the evening. This gentleman's well-known. He's actually pretty well-known in the motorcycle world. That's where he got his start, and he's a huge uh, motorcycle fan. But most of you guys will know this well-known celebrity from his Sunday night TV show, Wind Tunnel. And I would like to, with a very warm welcome, welcome Dave to Spain to our radio show. Dave, how are you doing? Doing well. Doing well. Nice to be with you tonight. Yeah, thanks for calling in, and uh, thanks for coming on the show. Hey, you know what? Now I feel like you do. When I watch you on TV on Sunday nights, you know, I'm sitting here in front of a set of mics, and uh, I got these earphones on, and, uh, you know, it's kind of a cool feeling, you know? <laughs> and and now you're the, you're the observer. You know, you're the... I'm on uh, the other side of you're the... On the other uh, s- I'm on the other side of the questioning. Yeah, right. <laughs> I hope it doesn't hurt. <laughs> no, no, no. I'll be gentle. I'll be gentle. We'll keep it simple. So anyway, uh, yeah, for a lot of our listeners out there, you know, a lot of people know you from, from Wind Tunnel, obviously, and they know you from, from NASCAR TV and, and all the stuff you've done with, uh, with uh, car racing and stuff like that. But let's go back and talk a little bit about your motorcycle days. Um, you're from... Ohio, or Iowa originally, correct? Right, and fell in with the motorcycle crowd uh, early on, much to my mother's uh, concern. Um, it was kind of a two-part deal. Um, street racers, which I'm not particularly proud of, looking back on it, and dirt racers. Uh, it was all the same bunch of guys. Um, you know, we had, uh, as it evolved, most everybody had a... Uh, uh, a street bike, which for us was Harley Sportsters, because that was the fastest thing you could get, and um, dirt bikes, which then, it's kind of a complicated story, but m- most of the guys rode uh, Ducati 250 Scramblers. I had a Boltaco Matador, um, so we would ride you know, street bikes, and then on weekends we'd ride dirt bikes, and it was um, it, it evolved into racing. We built a racetrack. Uh, we had a little local motorcycle club. We built a track. We had a couple of guys who were actually pretty good who came out of there. And uh, I got that bug and tried a little dirt track racing. I wasn't very good at it, but really enjoyed it. So I did that for a few years and uh, just absolutely fell hopelessly and eternally in love with motorcycles. And that love affair continues to this day. Well, super. Well, now you, uh, when you were back in the day, you kind of were racing there for a while, and then uh, what happened? You had to uh, eventually kind of make a decision as to where your career was going to go. Yeah, well, then... it was pretty apparent from the beginning that I was better. I was, I had, I got into the radio business when I was a you know sophomore in high school. We had a speakers club at the local high school and the local radio station. We're talking small town Iowa local radio station had an hour a week that they basically just turned things over to the speakers club and we did an hour high school radio show reported on the you know the sports teams and and uh, played music and it was silly but it was fun and um, I was good enough at it that they offered me a job so I went to work for the radio station when I was 16 and um, did radio for years um, when we started the racetrack it was pretty obvious who should be the race announcer that would be me even though i wanted to be a racer so i would uh, put my leathers on and go run my four lap heat race and get eliminated and spend the rest of the night announcing the races for all the people that actually belonged out there so um after you know a few years of that as you said it became obvious to me that i wasn't going to be Grand National Champion, and I might need an alternative source of income. <laughs> so I uh, started casting around for some sort of gainful employment that involved, uh, in a perfect world, broadcasting and motorcycles. And by circuitous route, ended up working for the sanctioning body, the AMA, the American Motorcycle Association. I went to work for them in 1971, I think it was, uh, in the racing department. And my job basically was doing public relations, writing press releases, and and announcing races. Although that was a sideline, that wasn't part of my job description. Now, for for those uh, listeners, uh, when we're talking about uh, when you're on a dirt racing, you were dirt track, so that's flat track ovals, correct? Yeah. Okay. Yes. And uh, that was kind of the core of what was then called the Grand National Series for years. I mean. Flat track racing, both you know, or dirt track racing, oval racing, take mm-hmm. pick, is an American staple in on two and four wheels, and going way way back. And and part of the reason for that is that 
every county fairgrounds in America mostly have a have a some sort of oval track. Mm-hmm. Uh, originally horse tracks back at the turn of the century, and that was very convenient once racing started to get a foothold because there was a track there. So you know, motorcycle racing literally at the turn of the century, car racing uh, in the early part of the century was centered around these local horse tracks, dirt tracks. And um, that was, in the motorcycle world, they made a uh, championship series starting in 1954 that was predominantly oval tracks, and they ranged from quarter mile to half mile to mile ovals. There were some other variations in that, but that was the form of racing that I really liked. I was particularly fond of half miles because they were faster. Um, I wasn't any better at that than I was at short track racing, but I, I liked it. And uh, so that was that's what we did at a Boltaco Boltaco Persang. That was one of the few out of the box dirt track bikes that you could buy. Most everything else had to be built. You built it. You took a you know whatever you, the motor of your choice, mostly two strokes, and uh, put them in a in a purpose built frame. Trackmaster Sonic Weld put spool wheels on and uh, minimalist gas tank and seat, handlebars, and away you went. And you were telling me, too, that back in those days you guys didn't have brakes, and for an, for a very uh, significant reason, too. Why was, I was that? I was right at the tail end of the no-brakes era. Uh, for most of the early history of dirt track racing, the bikes didn't have brakes because the way, you, the way you slowed it down was to turn it sideways and slide into the corner, and if you get 16 guys out there, you know, all pitching it sideways at the same time. What you don't want in the middle of that is somebody slamming on the brakes and slowing down disproportionate to the rest of the field and causing a big chain reaction crash. So they had no brakes, odd as it sounds, for safety reasons, and subsequently added brakes, not because of the impact on the racing, but because there were a couple of accidents in the pits. Guys coming off the racetrack couldn't get stopped, hit somebody, and the uh, lawyers were becoming much more a part of the racing scene than they had been prior to that, and it became apparent to everybody involved that needed to put brakes on them. So they did. Uh, yeah, a lot of schools have thought about that. One school of thought is that it hurt the racing because what happened as a result was instead of 16 guys all going in and pitching them sideways and running all the way from the outside fence to the inside fence, everybody dove to the bottom, put the brakes on, and ran single file around the inside rail, rubbered up the racetrack, and the first thing you know, you had a groove that was, you know, one bike wide. I don't know to what extent the brakes are to blame for that. I mean, there have always been groove racetracks. So, um, but I'm firmly of the opinion that it, that in the no brakes era, the racing was more dramatic because it was just that you know you just ran six or eight wide as opposed to single file. Okay. Well, you know, it's funny you mentioned that, too, because t- referring to safety, was, we had Brian Redman on the show here uh, about a month or two ago, and uh, we, we somehow we got on the subject about uh, seatbelts, for example, and he was telling me that, and I know this is a little different analogy, but, you know, there's, there's two schools of thought. Like, for example, you're saying brakes in terms of safety or yay or nay, right? Well, this is kind of like a lot of the racers back in the 60s, 50s, 60s, with some of the safety equipment, and let's say particularly in this case seatbelts. And the reason a lot of them didn't like seatbelts or didn't wear seatbelts is because most of the guys would rather be thrown from the car rather than sit in the car and get trapped sure. in there yeah. and then burned up. So Famous famous story about one of Redmond's contemporaries, Maston Gregory, uh, running off the track and uh, realizing he was going to crash, and so he just jumped out. Uh, I don't want to be aboard this thing when it hits that tree. Um, so there you go. I mean, clearly uh, the, the contemporary wisdom is that you want to be seriously strapped in. And um, yeah, I think there's probably enough body of evidence now that that's the better way to do it, that uh, I think you'd meet a lot of resistance if you proposed racing without seatbelts. So uh, when did you make the transition from motorcycle announcing to to cars? Um, I guess 1981. Um, I was working for the AMA back up to 1975. I was working for the AMA. Went to Daytona to do the annual season opening Daytona 200, which is the two-wheeled equivalent of the Daytona 500. ABC Wide World of Sports showed up at the last minute and bought the rights to the race. 
so all of a sudden the race was going to be on TV. And they didn't have an expert analyst, and I was lucky enough to land that job. So my very first ever TV show was ABC Wide World of Sports. And as a result of that, I met Ken Squire, who was then the anchor of the Motor Racing Network, subsequently went on to be the uh, host of the famed 1979 Daytona 500, where they had the big fight in turn four after their turn three after the race, first ever live flag-to-flag coverage of NASCAR. I uh, got to know Ken, started working Motor Racing Network as a turn announcer, meantime still full-time employed by the AMA. Fast forward to 1981, Squire had come up with the idea for a weekly racing highlight show that he wanted to call Motor Week, and he had a partner, and they decided that it was time to put the show on the air. They did a deal with Turner Broadcasting, which was then Superstation WTBS, or most often referred to simply as TBS, and... uh, the idea was that Squire was going to host the show. Well, by then, he had uh, gotten himself sufficiently ingrained at CBS that he had a contract, an exclusive contract, and he couldn't host the show. But as the owner of the show, he realized that it was time to get it on the air as a business deal, and so now he needs somebody to host it, so he hired me. And Motor Week, which became Motor Week Illustrated because we discovered that the PBS show Motor Week, which is still on the air, uh, already had that name. <laughs> Somebody oh. had done their own work. Okay. So at the absolute last moment, we added the net, we added Illustrated to the name, and it became Motor Week Illustrated. Debuted 1981. I uh, left the American Motorcycle Association with a, a 13-week deal for a new TV show in Atlanta. Moved what little stuff I had, including a couple of bikes, and uh, been doing TV full time ever since. Motor Week covered all kinds of racing, so I had to quickly become a bit more knowledgeable about four-wheeled racing. I had paid attention to, to car racing. I like all kinds of racing. Motorcycle racing is my favorite, but um, I'm, I'm a fan of all kinds of motorsports, so it wasn't like I didn't know anything. Um, so that, that, was, that was how it started. Did that show for, gosh, I don't know, six, seven years. It had a pretty good run. Went, went two or three years on Turner and then went to ESPN, and we were there until... I think 87 or 88. During the uh, late 60s and 70s, you know, while you were still doing the motorcycle stuff, did you do a lot of street riding yourself back then? I mean, were you in the bikes quite a bit? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we used to ride. uh, Oh, a big trip for us was, you know, a 500-mile one way to the national dirt track races. That was basically what we – that was our destination. And we did a lot of, you know, just riding around close to home. Um take off for an evening for fun and entertainment usually ended up being a race but uh yeah i mean i rode every day where was the national where was the national dirt track races at where were they held at oh peoria illinois indianapolis uh sedalia missouri lincoln nebraska so different locations in the midwest then so to speak yeah yeah i lived in iowa and uh, everything we everything that was in we all you know we all had jobs so you know, if you if you a, a Saturday night race in Indianapolis was doable because you had Sunday to get back home. Uh, Sunday afternoon in Peoria was doable because it was three hours from home. But a Sunday afternoon race, you know, 500 miles away, you couldn't do because you had to be back at work on Monday. Uh, so we went to everything we could. I mean, we didn't we didn't miss many. And there were a few nationals in Iowa. They read a uh, there was a, a road race uh, track up near Des Moines called uh, Greenwood. They ran, I don't know, two or three, uh, two or three nationals there. So we hit them all. And then, of course, there were there were local races. Um, that if we weren't racing in those races, then we would ride to the races and, and spectate. But for the most part, by then I was trying to be a racer. So now those we, the the Grand National races. What determines the location where they're going to be? Is that just something that, that like the the the, organize, the the organization there determined that we're going to move it around so we're not going to keep it in one location? A, you know, you need a you need a promoter that will put up the money and thinks he can draw a big enough crowd to make money on it. Um, Peoria has been a national since right after World War Two. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it literally started in '46, if I remember right. Um, so it's you know do the math. It's been around 60 years. Um, Indianapolis ran its first first big important motorcycle race. 
Uh, I want to say Howard Taft was president, and he was there. He went to the motorcycle race at the Indiana State Fairgrounds. I believe Cannonball Baker won it. Wow. Uh, and this was like 1904 or something. Yeah. Um, there's a there's a there's a long tradition of motorcycle racing at the state fairgrounds around the country. Springfield, Illinois, has run since the turn of the century, um, but Indianapolis has been on and off the national championship schedule for a hundred years. Um, it's back on again as of two or three years ago. It's you know fairground uh, fair board politics are always kind of complicated and whether the whether the racing uh and it's not just it's not just indiana it's not just motorcycle racing i mean minnesota had a had a long-standing uh auto racing tradition at their fair and i don't think they run any any racing there now um you know debates about whether the racing pays for itself or whether you know because people buy a grandstand ticket they got to get on the fairgrounds did they come for the race did they come for the fair it's you know, and there are a lot of a lot of people with agendas, so it gets very complicated. But anyway, to make to make a long story short, you have to have a promoter with a track or the ability to lease a track um, and the wherewithal to put up a guarantee that he's going to you know financial guarantee that he'll be there and you know he'll pay the purse and uh, and they'll run the race. But okay. Some of them are traditional, some of them come and go. Knoxville, Iowa, the home of the famed Knoxville Nationals, has run a national motorcycle race periodically over the years. Somebody will decide, hey, this ought to work, and they try it, and they don't make enough money, so it goes away. And then somebody else will try it a few years later. Promoting racing, all kinds of racing, is a difficult, challenging, and uh, uh, risky way to make a living it takes a special breed of cat to be a promoter <laughs> that brings me to the uh the motorcycle hall of fame now you were inducted in that one 1998 1999 somewhere in there and weren't you involved uh, that in that sounds right i don't remember exactly <laughs> yeah that sounds right i guess i'd been around long enough that they figured they better just stick me in there <laughs> is that what it is now what all is that uh that it's it's the is it am i saying it correctly motorcycle hall of fame or is it the ama motorcycle um What's well, it's 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 the motorcycle hall of fame. There okay. are other halls of fame in the motorcycle world. Uh, their claim, I guess, to the name is the fact that they're the national organization that's been around since 1924. So uh, they're they're generally acknowledged to be the hall of fame. Uh, I actually organized a dirt track hall of fame at one point, uh, which was not one of my gr- well. It was one of my great successes in the short term. Unfortunately, it didn't survive in the long term. Um, it was it was a bit of a lark. Uh, I was I was up to my ears in NASCAR racing, and a couple of uh, pretty well known people in the uh, in the motorcycle world passed on, including Ricky Graham, who was uh, twice national champion. And I thought we really ought to have some kind of a a way to remember these guys, honor these guys. Mm-hmm. Um, so I put up two thousand dollars. And I wrote a letter to everybody I could think of in the motorcycle world and said, "Look, I'll put up two grand. I'm looking for 24 more people to put up two grand. Let's get fifty thousand dollars. We'll put up. We'll, we'll put on a fifty thousand dollar purse race, which at that time would have been the richest race on the schedule. And we'll organize a little celebration around it, and we'll see if it goes anywhere. If we make any money, we'll reinvest it into the effort to create a Hall of Fame." Now this is well, for dirt track, up, right? The goal was fifty thousand dollars. We ended up with one hundred and thirty-six thousand dollars. Wow! Uh, turns out I got a lot of friends. Uh, <laughs> largely, largely Harley dealers. A lot of Harley dealers in that group, or people that uh, Harley's been a, a long-time supporter of dirt track racing, and mm-hmm. at that time the motorcycle business was good. Harley dealers were making lots of money. So, and and lots of guys that just love dirt track racing. So they wrote checks. So anyway, long story short, we paid the fifty thousand dollar purse and flew into the race, into the event, every living number one, everybody who had ever held the number one, the national championship plate. That was, I don't know, 17, 18 guys. And where was this held? Jim Davis, who was at that time 103 years old. Where was this held at? Uh, Springfield, Illinois. Springfield, Illinois, okay. For most of the history of dirt track racing was the national championship race. There was a a 50-miler at Springfield was the one race for the national championship up until 1954. You win that race, you were the champion. So it was fitting that uh, that, that should be the, the, the scene for this race. And it was just incredible. We had a huge crowd, and, and um, 
it was it was really emotional and very cool and I'm glad we did it. What didn't happen was the, the thing didn't just kind of take off and, and develop legs and get an organization built. We didn't get an organization built around it. I wasn't in a position to run it. And uh, so as a result, it, it lasted, you know, four or five years, and then it just kind of withered away. So I'm sad about the fact that it didn't make it, but I'm proud of the fact that uh, for the first couple of races, we paid $100,000 the second year, um, which is double what any dirt track motorcycle race has ever paid before. So that was pretty cool. Now, does this carry over to the Hall of Fame area that you're involved in? or I mean, so well, what no, happened? They were, separate, your... they were separate deals, okay. and that was a bit of a controversy because at the time the AMA didn't, didn't really necessarily think that having a dirt track Hall of Fame was the best idea because they were going to have their Hall of Fame, and they didn't want to have a dirt track Hall of Fame and a motocross Hall of Fame and a road race Hall of Fame. They wanted one big Hall of Fame, and my argument was, look, you know, there's if there's there's nothing to they're, they're not competing. You can you know you can fold this into your thing, or it could be separate. It doesn't matter. But they perceived, I think, that it was competing, and so that that wasn't a big deal. But there was a little bit of of a political. Uh, uh, struggle involved i guess with that was the way to put it but um for the most part it was a it was a big success i mean it, it just it just didn't survive it didn't it was a short-term success it didn't survive for the long haul is there an actual ama you know i should have done my homework here but i kind of that kind of skipped over that because i had other things we kind of we kind of digressed here a little bit but nonetheless is there an a- actual like museum ama museum where mm-hmm. the yeah, yeah. Or, it's at the national headquarters which is in columbus ohio okay so the dirt track, the flat track, all that stuff, it's not all under the same roof, and it's all not, like, consolidated in there anyway? Yeah, it is. I mean, their, their, their Hall of Fame is comprehensive. It covers, uh, it covers all aspects of, of motorcycling and motorcycle racing. And, uh, and, again, that was part of their point. They didn't, they didn't think that it was appropriate to have their Hall of Fame covering everything. And then, oh, by the way, here's this other Hall of Fame just for dirt track racers. I got you. Um, but our Hall of Fame never had a building. I mean, we, we existed basically as a, a one-time, a, a once-a-year race surrounded by a celebration, a banquet, an induction ceremony, and you know, the, Hall of, the Hall of Fame consisted of a bunch of famous racers having a plaque. So that was as far as we got. Okay. Now, to their credit, they've... They, got a real hall of fame yeah that's good that's because now that now we can put that on our our, our uh, bucket list of things to visit here you know before we uh you know and all the yeah, motorcycle cool guys museum. can go up there that's cool and it's in ohio you say columbus yeah okay uh now you also you you're we'll get into wind tunnel in a second here but you basically still your your series your show actually starts when it starts like the beginning of, it, it parallels nascar season correct yeah we mirror the 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 NASCAR schedule just because well, I'm not sure why. Um, I guess because the world revolves around NASCAR. These days. <laughs> okay. We, our first show is the night of the Daytona 500, and the last show is the night of the uh, series finale at uh, Homestead, Miami. So it's 40 weeks, and I do 35 of those every okay. Sunday night, nine o'clock on Speed, and we're basically a uh, a talk show, a phone-in show, an interview show, uh, you know, a bit of a bit of fan feedback and a lot of big-name racer interviews. Where'd the name Wind Tunnel come from? I have no idea. That was, was just a name they named when uh, I got uh, I got fired from my motorcycle show that I was doing for Speed at the time because they said the ratings were not sufficient to sustain the show. They were going to cancel the show, but what we want you to do is host this uh, talk show called Wind Tunnel. I heard it was David Hill's idea, David Hill being the, uh, oh, he's kind of a TV sports genius. He's Australian. He's a, uh, uh, a buddy of uh, the guy who runs Fox, and uh, he was the one who got, he basically created Fox Sports, and when the shocking coup of uh, Fox actually getting its first NFL contract back how many years ago that was that was that was David Hill's work mm-hmm. so uh, I've always been told that that was that it was his idea but I don't know that to be true hey back in your early days um, with uh, when you got into uh, when you're still doing motorcycles and you're making the transition into cars uh, I know I asked you off the air here a while back about uh, Bud Lindemann and his TV show that he had mm-hmm. um, you, you said you you had an opportunity to meet him or was he was he not around 
when you uh, uh yeah no i met bud i knew bud uh, back i don't know if the tv show he had he had several television projects that he was involved in over the years and did a lot of corporate um racing videos he hosted uh, the show that was, was it called Car and Track? I think I it was Car and Track. Yeah, where they did some NASCAR, and then they did a feature car. That was actually a pretty cool show back in the seventies, eighties. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I did. I did a lot of work for them over the years. Um, voiceovers of various projects. They did a series of racing shows uh, uh, for Valvoline, and I, I voiced all those. They did a series about the can about Can Am. Oh, let's see. Ray Hall, Patrick Tambay. Uh, who else was in that series at that time? Uh, Danny Sullivan. Uh, Paul Newman owned a car. It was a it was a pretty uh, significant car loss. It was a pretty significant uh, period in Can Am history. And Lindemann did a series. Of, I think we did maybe six or eight or ten shows. Mm-hmm. Um, just basically documenting individual events and lots and lots of interviews and and profiles and stuff. So uh, I was, I don't remember if that was a stand-up deal or if it was just a voiceover, but I was the, I was the voice of of that series. So I did a lot of work with, with Bud. And then after he died with his son, Dave, who ran the company subsequently. Cool. How about Chris Economaki? You got some stories about him? My hero. Your hero. (laughs) My favorite, uh, my favorite racing story, Chris Economaki was working for Wide World of Sports. A.J. Foyt won the Indy 500, uh, went on to lead the national championship, which was going to be decided at um, the uh, Sacramento Mile, a mile dirt track, because back, back then, IndyCar racing, champ car racing was both dirt and pavement. Economist is a long story. I'll try to make it short. Economaki was working for Wide World of Sports, so he was going to be the, the, the pit reporter. For the ABC, having broadcast the 500, wanted to cover the series finale and finish the story. Would Foyt win the national championship? And the producer, who who didn't know racing from a bowling ball, <laughs> was instructed that he had to get an AJ Foyt interview. And he perceived that this was might be something difficult to do. So he was calling Chris. Chris Economaki does not suffer fools well and does not like to waste time. This guy spent. You know, way too much of Chris's time calling him on the phone, trying to make sure that they were going to have this A.J. Foyt interview. And Chris says, that's not going to be a problem. I'll get you an A.J. Foyt interview. And, well, the producer wanted to show up on Thursday at at Sacramento. And Chris says, that's a one-day race. They'll be racing somewhere else Saturday night. They'll show up on Sunday morning, and we'll go get an A.J. Foyt interview. And it just drove Chris crazy. So they finally get fast-forward to Sunday morning. They're at the race. This promoter or this uh, producer is jumping out of his skin because it's time to get this A.J. Foyt interview, and his whole career hangs on that. And Chris goes down, and A.J. has just walked the track, the you know, walked all the way around the Sacramento Mile. So they fire up the camera, and <laughs> Chris walks up to A.J. and uh, does his typical Chris Economy, uh, Chris Economaki introduction. This is A.J. Foyt, who's won the Indy 500. Now he's leading the national championship. He's here today to try to wrap up this this uh, prestigious crown. A.J., I noticed that you just walked the entire track. Were you looking for some subtle variation in the surface, some little characteristic that might help you to be successful here today? Sticks the bike in A.J.'s face, and I'm sure they had set this up, and A.J. says, Nah, Chris, it's just nothing like that. It's just that I can't take a good in the morning until I've had a nice long walk. <laughs> there he is, ladies and gentlemen, A.J. Foyt, who today will race for the national championship here in Sacramento. Okay. <laughs> I guess we could do that on internet radio, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, we can, although we are live, you know, uh, broadcasted all over Pinellas and Hillsborough County, but that's okay. We'll let that one slide. <laughs> well, anyway, that, that's that's Chris. I mean, he's just had this incredible sense of humor, and he, uh, he you know, he got back at, at the guy, but uh, Chris is Chris is one of my mentors, one of my idols. Chris gave me some very good advice. He said uh, I was very young, just new to the business, and had done a Victory Lane interview on a show that uh, Chris was working and did what so many guys do, which was to uh, make this long speech uh, telling the viewers everything I knew about the winner and then sort of just sticking the microphone in the winner's face. 
And Chris pulled me aside afterwards and said, next time, just ask the guy a good question. And I've never forgotten that. You know, that's, that's the interview's, interviewer's job, just ask a good question. You got it. Hey, real quick before we go, um, tell us about your little hobby you got going on at uh, Roebling Road a little bit. You want to give that a quick mention? Frank Kinsey Racing School, K-I-N-S-E-Y, frankkinseyracingschool.com. Uh, it's basically a road racing school. I tried road racing uh, when I turned 40, loved it, got hurt, didn't do it very long. Uh, years later, hooked up with Frank, and he, it's, his, it's his show. I just show up and uh, kind of help instruct the, uh, the newcomers, the beginners. We, we coach everybody from people that have never been on the racetrack before to f- serious, fast, you know, expert-level road racers. Frank handles the serious, fast, expert-level road racers. I handle the people that have never been at the track before. Basically, uh, show them the line, and then it's a lead-follow thing, and just work on your technique and try to make you a better and safer rider. It's a lot of fun. gives me a chance to still go out once in a while and get my knee on the ground, so I do it uh, every time he has a school, which is six or seven times a year at Roebling Road in Savannah, Georgia. RoeblingRoad.com. Roebling Road is how long? Two and change, two point something miles. Okay, and what kind of bike do you ride when you when you do that course? You... I've got a uh, an old uh, two thousand model R one because I don't subscribe to the theory that uh, you need a new motorcycle to be able to go faster. Mm-hmm. One of the things we point out to people is that uh, you can ride an old an old motorcycle ridden well is uh, oftentimes faster than a, a brand new motorcycle ridden poorly. So okay. we just try to make people better riders. Of course, you have a Ducati too, right? I have a Ducati Multistrada. I also take that to the track just because it's fun. Uh-huh. I, uh, it's my first Ducati, and I like riding it. And uh, it's probably not the perfect track bike, but I enjoy it. And uh, so that's I, I take them both and kind of switch back and forth from one to the other. Well, that's neat. I'm gonna have to do that one day. I'm gonna have to go get a hold of a bike and uh, get up there. And that's a one day deal, right? Up there at this. It's a one day school. It's 250 bucks. Uh, if you're already an accomplished track rider, there's a 150 dollar uh, track uh, day in in conjunction with the school. So it's alternating sessions. You can you can just come to the track day. It's 150 bucks, and uh, we run alternating 20 minute sessions all day. You'll get as much track time as you will anywhere in the country, and there will be dramatically fewer red flags than you will find at most uh, at most track days it's uh, it's a good deal it's a it's a really low threat level you don't have to you don't have to safety wire your bike uh, there's no tech inspection uh, you basically you know bring your street bike and uh, and we let you get it out on the track so it's a it's a great entry level for somebody who's never done track days but but is interested in it wants to improve their riding and or wants to want to be a racer. Frank's a certified instructor, so if you pass the school and uh, and do the licensing seminar, then uh, the uh, CCS and Weir will sign off on your license application, and you can go racing. Super. Well, Dave, I want to thank you for coming on the show. I just got my uh, couple second warning here, but uh, like I said, I figured. Uh, I hope I didn't disappoint too many people. You know, we didn't talk about NASCAR, but there's another side of Dave, and it's all about motorcycles. And I want to thank you for coming on the show, and I hope you come on again. My pleasure. I enjoyed right. it. Thanks. All right. Hey, happy New Year, and uh, everybody else out there. Thanks for tuning in to Nostalgic Radio and Cars, and we'll see you next week. We got hopefully Peter Schutz coming on. He's a former president of Porsche. We've got uh, Brian Fuller coming on in a couple weeks. We've got uh, Steve Strope coming on. And uh, with a little luck, maybe I'll get uh, uh, Robert Yates on here. So uh, stay tuned to Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Check out our website. Check out our Facebook. And uh, until next week, uh, everybody, stay safe and drive safe. Bring on you to the others.